Psalm 40. I waited patiently for the Lord to help me, and he turned to me, and he heard my cry. He lifted me out of the pit of despair, out of the mud and the mire. He set my feet on solid ground and steadied me as I walked along. He has given me a new song to sing, a hymn of praise to our God. Many will see what he has done and be amazed. They will put their trust in the Lord. Oh, the joys of those who trust the Lord, who have no confidence in the proud or in those who worship idols. Oh, Lord my God, you have performed many wonders for us. Your plans for us are too numerous to list. You have no equal. If I tried to recite all of your wonderful deeds, I would never come to the end of them. You take no delight in the sacrifices or offerings. Now that you have made me listen, I finally understand. You don't require burnt offerings or sin offerings. Then I said, look, I have come, as it is written about me in the scriptures. I take joy in doing your will, my God, for your instructions are written on my heart. I have told all your people about your justice. I have not been afraid to speak out about you, O Lord, as you well know. I have not kept the good news of your justice hidden in my heart. I have talked about your faithfulness and saving power. I have told everyone in the assembly of your unfailing love and faithfulness. Lord, don't hold back your tender mercies from me. Let your unfailing love and faithfulness always keep me safe. Okay. Oh, the joys of those who trust in the Lord. That sounds great. Do you want to be joyful? Raise your hand if you like the idea of living in joy. <laughs> okay, we're, we're pretty much all there. The way that I was given the gospel the scriptures, and even a sense of what it means to be a Christian, would cause me to read verse 4 and say, if I trust the Lord, then he will, he will grant me joyfulness. He'll make me joyful. Um, almost as though God is the, he's the dispenser of good things, and he gives them to people who are worth giving them to. And if I would just trust him, then I would be more joyful. What I also did interpretively and through my experience of life was I started to think that if I wasn't joyful, it must be because I'm not trusting the Lord, which caused me to feel shameful. And when you feel shameful before the Lord, that's not a close feeling, is it? It's very interesting how I would have been conditioned to interpret this. What if it was different? What if the way of the Lord was always available to you? And it wasn't that God would give you joy if you would just do the right things, but that there was an inherent joy in living the life of God. His love for you and his willingness to give to you is unconditional. He's not waiting for you to behave enough and then he'll give you joy. It's available, it's present, it's open. But the question remaining for you is, do you want to? 
Jesus, all the time, if you read the Gospels and pay attention to what he says to people, he'll say these profound statements like, what do you want? What do you actually want? What if, what if the love of God is there and present and available and the life within him, which leads to joy, is always available to you? This is the season of Epiphany. On the first week, right before the actual church calendar day of Epiphany, we're reading about the wise men. I was conditioned to look at the wise men story and say, wow, the wise men did the right thing. They gave good gifts to the true king. Gold, frankincense, myrrh, hoo-ha, that's good. What I've learned as time has worn on is that it's more of a statement about what God has done. Because what I didn't really connect with was the fact that these wise men are, are oriental dudes who live in a pagan nation and in no possible way worship Yahweh. They're astrologers, the Bible says. <laughs> they, 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 maybe we could say worship the star, I, I don't know. It's, we're, they're real, real uh, hazy figures, but what they are not is God-fearing individuals from Israel. <laughs> they're absolutely not that, which means they're what? Sinful, lost. We could throw all kinds of pejorative language around it. Interestingly enough, our pejorative language would be matched with God's loving language that says, yeah, they're my beloved. So how are they? But you, you, they haven't believed in you. They haven't done anything. They haven't obeyed righteously. What have they done? Well, perhaps you could say they obeyed when they followed what they had learned in a vision and came and pursued the star and ultimately land at the feet of Jesus. But the whole point of Epiphany that we're supposed to see is this is the moment where what God is not supposed to do is happening. He invites people from the pagan nations to become part of his revelation. He reveals his love to those who he really shouldn't be doing that to. Just keep letting that anchor in. Because what he's saying to those wise men, and I think subsequently all non-Hebrew people, is I love you. God gives his love to people who don't deserve it. Which is what we've kind of been talking about in the gospel language of our whole church experience at some level, right? You can't earn it. I didn't deserve it. I didn't earn it. That kind of thing. But what are we supposed to do with this idea that God loves us? If it has become buzzwordy and we see it on billboards and sometimes when I see it, I'm actually repelled. I don't know if you are. Like I just did before, I see Jesus loves you, Jesus loves you, and my instinct is kind of like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Really interesting instinct. Because when Allie says, Ben, I love you, I don't say, yeah, yeah, yeah. I kind of say, really? Like, for real? Almost with hope. Like, could that be true? You actually love me that much. I'm drawn to that. So why would I be repelled by Jesus loves you, Jesus loves you? That's very interesting to me. What are we supposed to do with that information? Here's why I think it matters. I think that as human beings, we are absolutely desperate for love. As an American male, I have been taught that I should not be desperate for love. That I'm strong on my own, I'm fine. If you love me, great. If you don't, no problem. I've got it. <clears throat> I'm a man. Right? As I've now lived for 40 years, I realize that all of my horrendous decisions in life have been an attempt to be loved. Every one of them. Every single one of them. 
whether it was engagement with pornography, whether it was drugs and alcohol, whether it was shutting people out of my life, becoming angry and aggressive toward people, all of them I can now see were rooted in a desire to be loved. Let that sink in. And if you're feeling that temptation thing coming on, ask you, try to get deep into that. What am I chasing here? I think we're desperate for love. And I don't, I don't mean the kind of love expressed through sentimental platitudes and greeting cards. I love you. I love you too. I love you. Those are nice. It's nice kind of social glue. But I mean deep, deep love. Deep, open. So in the Hebrew, sexual intimacy is described in terms of love, but certainly in terms of knowing. And it's, it's profound. I think we've lost this. For me, pitched through kind of a fundamentalist evangelical framework, sexual intimacy was always given to me through the lens of it's, a, it's like a pleasurable reward for people who have made the correct commitments in the correct way. So that's what you need to think about it. As I've grown older and started to think about sexual intimacy in a deeper way, I've learned to realize that that connection with the human is only possible for real in safety. There's so much about sex that has to do with safety. Being completely safe with another person. And the Hebrew language used this very visceral human experience to describe a, a relationship of total safety and intimate knowing of the other individual. So often the language in the, in the Old Testament will be, you know, they did this and knew each other. <laughs> he did this and knew her, that kind of thing. But considering it through only a lens of what's the correct, I haven't thought deeply about its meaning. And when I think about its meaning, I start to see the importance of safety. So when I have had or have sexual desires, my heart and mind and experience, I, 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 f I experience a sense of warning, caution, uh-oh, do this right, don't be bad, that kind of thing. But what if I started to think about that unbelievable kind of love and intimate knowing in the context of safety as something God has been trying to say to me my whole entire life? It's when you feel 100% safe under no threat at all that the most intimate and real love is possible. Now, you can expand that beyond sexual intimacy to say deep bondedness in true friendship, full openness and honesty. I think that's not possible when you're under threat, when there's a potential that that person might harm you. Now, this gets interesting when we talk about human-to-human -human relationships because that potential is always there because we're broken. But when we feel under threat, our brains do something profound. So I'm going to go a little scientific on you, but in your brain, there's two basic ways that you're functioning and making decisions. In your left prefrontal cortex, you have a 
ability, this is the part of your brain, if you've got a brain scan going and they're looking at the parts of your brain that are really lighting up at different moments, your left prefrontal cortex, it's gonna be pinging, it's gonna be firing when you're imagining, when you're stepping back from a scenario and self-reflecting, when you're considering, when you're self-aware and aware of others, aware of their needs, um, there's a couple others. I'm not a scientist, but I'm learning this stuff. The point is, is it's a higher capacity of thinking that allows you to take an assessment of reality and operate according to principle and who you are, okay? Then there's your low brain way of thinking, which is instinct, emotion. And the default human emotion is anxiety. 100% of human beings default in anxiety. Anxiety separates those two parts of your brain and it makes you operate out of the instinct. Okay? Anxiety is eradicated. Anxiety is lessened. It's diminished, which allows for the restoration of those two parts of your brain in the context of total safety. So when I meet with my counselor for an hour, I've told Allie, I feel like I can just think better than ever. And I think it's because I feel very safe and now my brain is working better. Now when my brain can actually think outside of the low brain, now what happens in low brain? Low brain, the disconnect, the emotion, the anxiety driven piece, you do one of three things. You fight, you flee, or you freeze. Somebody's gonna cause you pain, you fight them, you get after them, you make them stop, you use your power, you, you don't let your heart get hurt. Or, I'm done with you, you just cut them out, you flee. Or, you go panic mode and just sort of freeze. Right? And all of this is not because you're immoral and bad and stupid, it's because it was wired into us as people who all live in a world that kills us. <laughs> like, that's why the default emotion is anxiety. But I see in Romans 12, this language of, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And I saw this in the early church fathers talking about how Jesus reconnects things that never should have been separated. They talked about it in the sense of the noose, the Greek word for the divine intellect of the soul, and the sensory perception got split apart in the fall. Jesus reconnects them in his life and shows us you can actually live according to human instinct that's connected to the mind of God, and in doing so, become fully human. Jesus, therefore, is able to see his instinct to survive and say, I don't want to die, and that's not an immoral call. That's his deep, human, emotional, knee-jerk, anxiety-driven, in a good way, right? We're not saying we should not be anxious. We can't not be anxious. We're people but we can learn what to do with that anxiety, yes? Is the fear actually legit? Is the threat perceived or real? And I think the only way we can start to think that way is in safety. And I think that's what the church is about. I think the church is supposed to be a community of ultimate safety, characterized by a kind of forgiveness that knows no bounds. How many times am I supposed to forgive this jerk? Right? First of all, you're a jerk too. Second of all, forever. 
Because your Father in heaven forgives you like that. And if I can come into a relationship with Jim and know he's not going to intentionally try to harm me, also wisely knowing that as a human I'll probably hurt him and he'll probably hurt me, but if what we've said is we're going to always forgive one another and pursue the life of God, then we have a relationship of safety, a friendship. And I think that brother-sister camaraderie is what Paul talks about. He talks about this as a family. But I think it's all about a place of coming and being where we're safe with one another, and in doing so, we can move past the fighting with each other or cutting relationship and fleeing when things hurt, and we can be taught by our fears and our pains and work them out together. In Isaiah's day, the safety that you could imagine would come from your God. Everybody had gods. The God of your ancestors, the God of your nation, maybe the God of your tribe or land or family. Many gods, and the gods give you power, protection, safety, right? That's why you would sacrifice your firstborn kid to Moloch, because he promised some kind of safety for you. Notice, though, every god came with extreme exclusivity. Extreme. If you want to be with our God, then you have to do this, you have to do that, you have to live here, do that. There was a lot to do. The strongest sense of safety then came to those who were the most submitted to their God. Yes? The one who's obeying the most Moloch rules feels the safest under Moloch's power. I think that's happened in Christianity. Because the gospel that I was given worked a little bit like this. Everybody has sinned. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. Everybody's going to hell. But the good news is that you don't have to go to hell. Jesus' death and resurrection has made it possible for you to go to heaven. So, what are you going to do about that? That was the gospel I was given. And what I, what I was told is you don't have to do anything. There's nothing at all that you have to do. You can't earn it. You don't deserve it. But make sure you believe and go to church and tithe and don't do this and don't do that and not before you're married and make sure of this. And, and there was this sense of I, couldn't, I could avoid hell by not doing anything at all but doing something. And then it was always kind of just mysterious. Like, isn't believing doing something? Or what it ultimately left me with was there's a way to be saved through Jesus. Can you be enough? Nobody said it that way, but that's what I inadvertently got. What if the gospel is best seen as God, through Christ, has made you perfectly safe with him the question for you is do you want to enter into it or not the joy of living with him is inherent it's, it's the immediate reward of life in God the peace that surpasses understanding the gospel is that you're already safe with him because of what he's done and the challenge then is, 
do you want to live within the love and safety that you know is coming from God? Or do you want to live outside of it, still fearing that that love is not for you? You haven't quite done enough. But back in the day, the whole notion is you have to become... Uh, you have to become Israeli, <laughs> if you know, if, if you will. You have to follow and do all of these things uh, for God to love you. And if it wasn't Yahweh and Israel, Moloch or Marduk or any of these gods, they all had rigorous rules you had to follow to get in. The gospel comes in and says, no, it's actually not just for Israel. It's for all the ends of the earth. This is for all nations. My love for you is actually not conditioned upon your love for me. I loved you while you were yet sinning. I didn't wait till you got it together and then started loving you. I, I've loved you there. So it's actually always been present. Will you enter into it? And every one of us, well, maybe not everyone, but if you're like me, you're like, well, what happens if I don't enter into it? And that, I think, has been the obsession of a whole generation. How do I know if I'm going to heaven or hell? Heaven or hell? Heaven or hell? Heaven or hell? I think if Jesus came and did a weekend conference with us, we would be shocked at how little he talked about heaven and hell. And we'd be really, really interest, intrigued, interested by how much he did talk about entering into the kingdom of God that's already at hand, that he brings into the world. So, here I am, living outside the love of God what am I if I'm not living in a place of confident trust that I'm safe in God I need to create my own safety and my safety in this world is going to come through what degrees money friend groups whatever and I can learn to do and say and act and behave in all the ways that make me feel socially safe in some way but I want to suggest that those ways are only skin deep they don't actually last because they're self-created. You, because you're trying to create a sense of bondedness and safety and love, which we're all desperate for, but we're trying to make it happen rather than embracing and living into God's existing love for us. I will sit on this side and say, no, I'm not good enough yet. I'll sit on this side and say, I need to do a little bit more. Or for me, I sit on this side and I say, all love is scary. Because every time I've attempted to love, it has hurt me viciously. I actually started to process some of that in the past few weeks. I have always been afraid of God my entire life. For 40 years, and I'm 40 years old, I have been afraid of God. And I think I thought that it was good to be afraid of him because being afraid of God was what kept me behaving. But it did. <laughs> That's the crappy part. I learned to behave, but by always being afraid of God, guess what I'm not doing? I'm not consciously aware of his presence in my life on the daily. I kind of stay in relationship with him like I do with other authoritative, angry people who by and large are upset with me. Maybe you've had a similar experience with God. I know you say you love me. It really doesn't feel that way. And what I know about me and authority figures and just love in general is that you are dangerous. And I think all of these passages are trying to say to us, God is not dangerous. 
the epistle. Read this with me. I'm going a little bit long today, but it's really, is that okay if I go another five minutes here? The epistle from Paul, writing to the church in Corinth. This letter is from Paul. It's the first opening lines. Chosen by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and from our brother Sosthenes. I am writing to God's church in Corinth, to you who have been called by God to be his own holy people. Pause. Corinth. In the history of Corinth, they say this city was built on libertini. That's a Latin word for ex-freed slaves. The culture here is wild. The famous philosopher types in the day wrote about the people of Corinth and called them scoundrelly and wicked and wild. It was a really... Uh, thoroughgoing pagan sort of culture built with people who had no land, no titles, no nothing, but they're in an unbelievable spot for economy. <laughs> that Corinthian bronze was valued more than silver in some places. So they've got tons of money and it's kind of new lot on life and they're not faithful, temple-obeying, following, practicing Jews. <laughs> There's some there for sure, but here we are and he's saying, you, Gentile country slash city God called you and he, and he called you to be his I'm writing to you in Corinth he made you holy by means of Christ Jesus that's amazing you can't miss it he made you holy by Jesus just as he did for all people everywhere who call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ their Lord and ours and he says, here's what I want for you. May our Father, the Lord Jesus Christ, give you grace and peace. I always thank my God for you and for the gracious gifts he has given you that now belong to Christ Jesus. Notice five. Through him, God has enriched your church in every way. With all of your eloquent words and your knowledge, this confirms what I told you about Christ is true. Now you have every spiritual gift you need as you eagerly wait for the return of our Lord Jesus Christ. Notice eight, he will keep you strong to the end so that you will be free from all blame on the day when our Lord Jesus Christ returns. God will do this. Again, God will do this. For he's faithful to do what he says and he has invited you into partnership with his son. He's invited you into this partnership, living in Christ's life. It's available to you, and if you don't live in it, he's not angry with you, and he's not threatening to kill you. But I think the scriptures do say you're disconnected from the source of life. <laughs> so the clock is kind of ticking. In the life of Christ, we see a resurrection. We see a total defeat of death, a, a fearlessness, an indestructibility. So living into the life of Christ is living into the indestructible nature of the divine being. Living outside of it is living according to the physical world, which has a shelf life, yeah? And we say, well, when am I in and when am I out? And I don't think the scriptures give us that the way we want it. Once you've said this, once you've done that, that all turns into law, regulation, a, a, a point in the sand. What you see here is live in Christ you're all going to be trying to get, if you want to, live with Christ in his life. Not one of you is going to get fully Christ, right? You're all going to fall short of perfection. 
But knowing that, recognize this. I love you, love you, love you, and my gift of life is sufficient for you. My grace is sufficient. You don't have to say, I want to live with Jesus, but I don't know if I can do it perfect. So I'm not gonna. I'm afraid. Instead, you say, I want to live with Jesus, and I don't know if I'm going to do it perfect, but he has sworn to God that he loves me, no matter what. And boy, does that draw you in. I can do that with Allie. I can say, I don't know if I'm going to love you perfectly. And I think she would say to me, you probably won't, Ben. (laughs) But I think she would say, I'm going to keep loving you in spite of that. This is how I want us to see God, because I think it's so rooted in the scriptures, and I think we miss it, and we end up being afraid of him. We end up being afraid of him. Moment by moment, each day, you can choose to live within that presence of God in that life. We either do or we don't. And the question we want to ask, I think, is okay, but I want to start asking a different one. Here's the question. At what point, when is enough? How do I know when I've lived into Christ? And I want to just simply say, you get it. Are you trying to love God and love one another and neighbor as best you can and learning as you go? Or are you afraid and hiding from God? I regret to say that a lot of my life, even in Christian ministry, I have been hiding. But I will say, I didn't know I was doing that. It was instinctive. I I was taught I should be afraid of God. I knew I should be afraid of the world. And with that level of fear in my life, I was not able to understand that he actually loves me. I couldn't imagine it. I want to say this to you. I think it is the safety that you have given me this last year as the body of Christ I belong to that has helped me heal at the most profound level I've known in my entire life. It's because you come here and you see my brokenness and stuff I say that doesn't make any sense and you still love me. And you're helping me and you care about me. And I do the same for you. So I think we should keep on that path. And I'm gonna keep talking about the gospel this way because one of the things I think is that the gospel in our world, if it's truly is good news, we are talking to a world that is crippled with anxiety and depression. We're crippled with fear. We're all doing stuff where we say, why am I doing that? That doesn't make any sense. It's, that, it's instinct. It's the hardwiring. And I believe that in the safety of this church and in the safety of God's ever-present love, our minds can be restored Our bodies can be restored, and we can actually live totally confident in peace. And it's a peace that goes beyond understanding. I believe that in the depths of who I am. Let's pray, and then I'll talk about it for another three or four years.